Glad to have you with us tonight. It's good to have our visitors as always and the encouragement that you all provide to us here at Northfield Boulevard in the work that we are trying to do to share the gospel, to be a pillar and the ground of the truth, to be that one body that is at peace as we pray today and also growing in various ways. And we hope that maybe uh, if you are not from this area or maybe you live elsewhere, that uh, you could always come and live here and stay here. I'm speaking to a few people in particular, but uh, we're glad to have visitors with us as well. And we appreciate the work that our shepherds are doing. And as I mentioned a week or so ago, it is indeed uh, an exciting time when a church is looking at the prospect of a new shepherd or two or three or four or however five or however many end up uh, it would be. I don't know what that number is, but we look forward to that. And that's a good sign. Uh, there are lots of churches that struggle to find men that would, one, be capable of serving, but also being willing to serve or having the men just by number to serve. And so the fact that we have three shepherds that work in this church is a blessing. I want to talk about I am tonight. And in many ways, it's, it's kind of a part two or a part B of what we talked about this morning by looking at what Jesus meant and what he means to all of his followers all of his disciples. We know that the word disciple is the idea of one who learns from the teachings. Those two words are almost used interchangeably with one another from our master teacher. We are his disciple and we're trying to do what he's asked us to do. And so on various occasions, he would come along and he would say, I am, and then there'd be a blank. You know, there are a lot of different ways that you could study the I am statements. You could look at the six or seven, depending on how you number them. Uh, seven always works nicely because it, it's the biblical completion number that we're familiar with. But there's about seven statements where Jesus says, I am, and then he follows with a, a word or two or a phrase or an image that would have been important to the first century particularly, but certainly are just as important to us today. But instead, I want to look at it by developing four themes about what Jesus meant when he said, I am. And I believe that this study matters for a lot of different reasons. We mentioned this morning that there are various prophecies associated with Jesus, somewhere around 300, give or take, depending on how you number them. And one of those is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says he would be God with us. This is similar to the passage where, of course, we learned that he would come from a virgin who would later be known as Mary. And then in Matthew chapter 1, and we, we read that this was fulfilled, that Jesus would be God with us. And that's an important concept that we are going to be getting to, Lord willing, next Sunday morning in our Bible class, uh, and actually in a, an additional study that I'm engaged with, or studying the book of Hebrews in a couple of different venues right now, which is kind of interesting to bounce all those ideas off of one another, which takes us to Hebrews chapter 4, a passage that is very familiar to most of us where there the writer whoever he may have been uh, says this about the savior and about Jesus about the one who says I am and then fill in the blank 
And it says that we do not have a high priest. We do not have a Christ. We do not have a savior, you could argue, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the conclusion of that is our ability to come boldly to the throne of grace of our Father in heaven. And so throughout his life on earth, Jesus Christ would be one who would instruct his disciples what he meant to them. He says, this is what I mean to you. This is what I want you to gather out of me. And so those seven statements, the idea that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the vine, I'm the good shepherd, all those different statements, depending on how you number them, leads us to, it seems to me, four major themes. And those are the themes that I wanted to talk about tonight. One of those is that Jesus directs our path. He directs, and the key word there for me is direct. Uh, Jesus teaches in John chapter 14 and verse 6, where we had our scripture reading this morning. He says, I am the way. And we won't go back and spend a lot of time talking about the fact that that is a very exclusive statement because we really kind of hit that hard this morning. But we do need to understand that this does reinforce this notion of exclusivity, that that's the only way to get to him. And that's all I'll say about that at this point or at this juncture, because this morning we spent a good five to 10 minutes just on that point itself. The fact is, is that God, his son, and his word, and we know there's a connection in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, have always provided us with direction. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. And incidentally, I appreciate uh, Joshua Martin who picks songs that remind us of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And in many ways, we're, we're talking about some of those things tonight because it helps with our study of what we're trying to develop. Jesus directs our path. We walk in a world, as we often say, is in darkness. And in the reading that Derek did a good job of providing us with in Acts chapter 2, it talks about the idea of us being in a, in a crooked or a perverse or a dark generation. That was the case in the first century. That was the case in the days of Noah. That was in the case of Abraham and Lot. We always uh, seem to be living in a time filled with darkness where we need someone to direct our path. And Jesus is there with the flashlight or with a lantern saying, follow me, I'll show you where to go, and you will not stumble if you follow me. And indeed, it is a difficult path, as Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7. It's not an easy one. And that goes back to the point that I made this morning that we live in a religious world or even in a non-religious world where everybody goes to heaven. You go to heaven, you go to heaven, everybody goes to heaven. But that's not what the scriptures teach. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and wide is the way that leads to destruction, which is why Jesus would call himself the light who gives that direction. So let's go to the Gospel of John, where we read in John chapter 14 just a moment or so ago, or at least quoted from it. But I want to go back to John the 8th and John the 9th chapters. And all the statements that we're really kind of focusing on tonight to develop these four major themes come almost exclusively from the Gospel of John. In John chapter 8, if you would, in verse 12, it says, Jesus spoke to them again, and he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
And there is indeed so much packed into that one simple yet profound statement. And we could expound on that for the next 15 minutes, but let's spend all of about 30 seconds on it. When Jesus says, I am the light, it's exclusive, yet again, of the world. This world needs light desperately. And it is Jesus who is that light. And of course, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, I want you to be salt and I want you to be a light. I want you to, in many ways, reflect me to the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We do not like walking in darkness. Uh, Wendy gets after me because if I get up at three in the morning to take the dog out, I will turn a flashlight on and she'll say, do you think something has moved in the house? Has the furniture moved? Uh, no, I want to see where I'm going accurately to let Max out and get him back in credit. You never know what could be in the way. You never know what could be lurking in the dark. But the fact is, is we are afraid of the dark as young children. And even as older people, sometimes we're a little afraid of the dark. So we put a nightlight in our hallway or whatever the case may be. Because we want to be able to walk in an accurate way and not stumble. There have been people who are present here tonight who have taken a chance of walking in the dark. And you have broken toes and other appendages on your feet that uh, have proven as to why you don't walk in the dark. Because we want to be able to see clearly the path that is before us. And incidentally, when we are walking in the dark, whether it be on a trail or whether it be in our house or whether it be in the backyard because you think something might be out there, when you turn the flashlight on your phone or you get a flashlight next to your bed off the, off the nightstand, you, you don't shine it behind you as you walk. You shine it in front of you. That's what Jesus says that I provide for you. Similarly, in chapter 9, if you drop down just a page or so in your Bible, he says in verse 5, he says, as long as I am in the world, this is chapter 9, verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. No wonder why, by the time you run around to chapter 15, the disciples are alarmed about the pending departure of Jesus because their light was going out, at least so they thought. But Jesus would, of course, say shortly before ascending back, if I could broadly paraphrase Matthew 28, lo, the light is with you always. That's not exactly what Matthew 28 says, but that's what he's arguing there. He's saying, I'm going to be with you always. Even though I'm going to be absent from you on this earth, the light of Jesus and certainly thy word provides us with direction to our path. All right, secondly, we understand that Jesus directs our path, but I want us to also to acknowledge the fact that Jesus develops our lives. We need development and we need growth. Uh, if you have a, an infant, and this, this congregation is blessed with a lot of infants and some infants on the way, and we are excited about that, and we hope that maybe in the course of the next five years, even more, because it's an exciting thing when a congregation is able to experience growth, not only numerically of its members, but also of the children of those respective members and friends. But physical children need to grow. And so if you have an infant and he or she doesn't grow appropriately, you very quickly get them to the pediatrician and say, he's not developing right or she's not growing as much as what we think she should. That's why we do weights and we check heights and we do blood work and we do all those different things that are maybe not pleasant for us to have our children go through. But like physical children, spiritual children must grow and we need development help, developmental assistance from Jesus himself. 
there are very few things that a person needs physically to exist. And that's really hard for us as Americans to really kind of wrap our heads around because the things that we need, well, I, I need color TV and I definitely need cable or satellite or at least access to YouTube. I definitely need those things. And I've got to have air conditioning and I've, all the things that we've got to have, which are really luxuries. I was talking with some brethren uh, this morning about brethren elsewhere in the world where it's developing and they don't have those luxuries and they're able to somehow survive without them. And so the things that we need are really quite basic. We need a place to live, some sort of shelter to keep us dry and warm. And we need clothing for the same similar reasons. And we need food. And we, I think I can speak for all of us, even the poorest of whoever may be here, are blessed with those basic things. And so we are not in want. And the vast majority of those who are present, I'd venture to say, have never really been in want of something physical that is absolutely essential to this life. And so that essentialness is associated with bread, where Jesus says in a third statement that we're really getting at here, Jesus says, I am the bread. And by the way, when Jesus provides us with that uh, scaffolding of prayer in Luke chapter 11 or Matthew chapter 6. He says, give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say, give us the bread for tomorrow or the next week or the next month. Nothing wrong with preparing for those particular uh, future days. I do know of an elderly Christian who says, I don't buy green bananas anymore. And you know why? He said, I may not be around to enjoy them. But He's not pessimistic. He's just re being reality. But we can prepare for the future. But ultimately, what are we most concerned about? Worry about today, Jesus would say, for tomorrow will take care of itself. It's sufficient for its own trouble. Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 and 34. And so turn, if you would, back to John chapter 6. We won't read all of these verses because it's 18 verses, but I just want to highlight a couple of things. And then maybe sometime this week, read through the gospel of John. It's 21 chapters. It'll take you all of about maybe 30 minutes to 40 minutes, depending on the speed with which you read. But definitely read through John chapter 6. There are some, I would argue, challenging aspects of John the 6th chapter. There's some parts there where you have to really kind of use your brain. But most of it is pretty straightforward. It says the Jews complained in verse 41. And the reason they complained is because I am the bread which came down from heaven. And of course, they scoff saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? And we know his family. Most assuredly, verse 27, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And then he repeats it, or at least comes back to this again, verse 48. And this is, an, this is a testimony to the way that we should, I think, sometimes teach, where sometimes we might say something that is controversial, factual, politically incorrect, but factual in, in, in biblical speak. And we say, well, I want to back off from that because I'm going to get myself in trouble. Jesus just says, I'm just going to put it out there. And in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. I, I'll say this. I'll go a little bit off of what I was going to say at this point. But uh, I know that there was uh, grave disappointment uh, in the speaker tonight, uh, as outlined by Caleb earlier this morning. He didn't think I was going to forget that. Huh? 
I appreciate that. You got Caleb's going to do announcements Wednesday night. I hope you come back for that. <laughs> but let me say something about David. One of the things I've learned from David in three and three quarters years is just say it. And if they like it, great. If they don't like it, don't worry about it. And I appreciate his attitude. That's a Christian attitude because we are taught not to say things just to make people happy. But I've been in some conversations with someone else, a brother or a sister in Christ or someone with whom we're having a study, and he'll just flat out say it. And I'm like, how did he just do that? And part of that's wisdom, part of that's age, and part of that's experience. And I appreciate David so much uh, for that and for so many other things here. But Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. That's the truth. And if you don't like it, tough. I am the bread. I am everything that you need that is most fundamental and expected in this life. He says, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am, verse 51, the living bread. So he goes even further. And he says, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Of course, this gave way to confusion and consternation and all kinds of misunderstanding as to what he was exactly talking about. Drop down, if you would, to verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. If you eat physical food, you will live for a few days or a few weeks. We can go a fair amount of time without eating the way that our bodies are constructed. But if you eat of the bread of life, if you take of Jesus and all that he provides, Jesus says, guess how long you're going to live? Forever. That's spectacular. To a world that scoffs at the notion of Jesus as being the Christ, go back to our, our AM sermon, that really is uh, alarming and really seems to be concerning to them. Jesus develops our lives. Of course, God doesn't want us to just exist. He doesn't want us to sit on a pew. He doesn't want us to just show up to church services and maybe read our Bible once a month or so. He wants us to be thriving and developing as his children. Much like our parents and those of you that are especially parents of younger children, you want your children to thrive physically and emotionally and mentally. You want them to thrive. You want them to develop to be good, healthy individuals. No parent ever says, well, I sure hope my child doesn't develop and become uh, all that he or she can become. No, no parent ever says it. You want them to do better than even you were able to do because you love the child. And that is certainly the case in that Jesus is the source of strength that allows that to happen in that Jesus is, there it is, divine. So turn over, if you would, to John chapter 15. We're going to very quickly breeze through verses 1 through 8. He says, I am the true vine. Incidentally, uh, this is a section of scripture that is misused by many in the religious world. That's not really the scope of our study together tonight. We can save that for another time. Uh, 
But he says, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, he repeats, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. By the way, if you want to underline the word nothing there, without Jesus, I can do nothing. Very important point. It's not a matter of without me, you can't do as much as you otherwise could. Without me, Jesus says, you are going to be able to do nothing. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them in the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, which is what we just said in song 20 minutes ago, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So, two key points. One that I just made is that without Christ, we are absolutely nothing. And the second of those things is the more Jesus develops us, the more the Father is glorified. The more the Father is glorified, the more we develop. And really, it's kind of a circle or a cycle in which we are engaged in, in, in practicing the things that, that God wants in our lives. Jesus directs our path. Jesus develops our lives, and from the I am statements, we learn that Jesus is truly devoted to us. The word devoted is the word that is used uh, in some versions in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 that Brother Derek read for us a few moments ago when it talks about they were devoted to the uh, various four things of the early church. The image of Jesus as our shepherd is one with which we are quite familiar, and it dynamically and powerfully illustrates how dedicated and devoted that he is to us and to all of his followers. Jesus is indeed the good shepherd. Turn over, if you would, just about three pages back in your Bibles to John chapter 10. And verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. There's so much to be said just about that statement because Jesus doesn't say, I'm the shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And you could talk about that for a few moments. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. Three different times he says, I am the good shepherd. After all, Jesus, as we studied this morning while partaking of the Lord's Supper, would say in John chapter 15, that no greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for one of his friends. It is possible to be a bad shepherd or to be a shepherd substitute, like the hireling here in this particular story. But Jesus, we read here, is well connected with his followers. And this, you could argue, is sermon number three, part two of our series on shepherds, which we engaged in over the last four to six weeks. Because even though our local shepherds and shepherds-to-be potential 
are not Jesus and will never be divine. They've got to be connected with the sheep, which goes back to the point that I made just a week or so ago. Jesus is devoted to us. I know that because of also what is written in John chapter 10, here on the same page in verse seven, where he says, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So much could be said about that. Uh, Historically, we know that uh, shepherds would do everything they could to kind of protect and provide for a barrier to their sheep in ancient times, and they would literally lay at the entrance and exit point to provide protection against any animal or anything that would try to otherwise harm the sheep that they were uh, loving and protecting and feeding and providing for and devoted to. Jesus illustrates his devotion, and he fiercely defends and protects his followers. Think about that. Jesus says, if you are one of mine, one of my disciples, I'm the door for you, and I'm not going to allow anyone to harm you. Now, we know, see 1 Peter chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, that there is suffering and challenges that are associated with being a child of God. And so to say that I'm not going to have any problems in this life because I'm a child of God would be an inaccurate thing to say. But Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of that. Be afraid of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell, as outlined in Matthew chapter 10. Consider, if you would, the promises in this same passage in verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them what? There it is again, eternal life. Not life. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So that brings us to our fourth and our final, and I think our our kind of ultimate climactic observation, and that is Jesus deepens our hope. We have hope, but with Jesus, it is deepened and made more meaningful. Jesus, in John chapter 11, tells us that he is the resurrection and he is the life. I know that because of what I read in chapter 11 in verse 23, where Jesus says in regards to Lazarus, and we're familiar with Lazarus, he says, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus comes along and he says, let me, let me talk to you about the resurrection a little bit. He says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. There's so many implications of what was being said by Jesus, particularly about Lazarus and about all of those who would follow him both in the first century and in the 21st century and everyone in between. But the hope that comes from Christ is truly greater than anything that the world can offer. Which brings me to this one final passage that I've been thinking about over the last 36 hours, maybe more so than before. And that is where Paul says to the church of Corinth that if in this life only we have hope, we are all men the most pitiable or the most miserable. And I've used this verse before. Uh, I use this verse oftentimes, especially at a funeral for a believer. This is, incidentally, 
not a verse that I typically use to comfort someone, a family, when one of their loved ones is not a believer. You understand where I'm coming from there. But as with all that Jesus does, only the I am, which incidentally goes back to the name of God himself in the book of Exodus chapter 3, provides us with this hope. And let me say something about hope, that there's been some conversations in the last few weeks. There are lots of people who are suffering in this congregation and in other congregations around the country and around the world. I know of at least two, and you may know of more, and you may know who I'm speaking about, but I know of at least two gospel preachers who are preparing to, at a very young age, exit this life. And there is nothing likely that will be done, medically speaking, to keep them to a point where they're going to age into their 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's not me being pessimistic. It's me just being realistic. And if you are familiar with certain news outlets or at least social media outlets, you know that a gospel preacher just 72 hours ago stood up to preach the gospel just a couple hundred miles from us and was tragically killed in an automobile accident on his way back. I don't know if this is the last sermon that I'll ever preach. I hope that it's not, but I'm okay if it is. You see the point that I'm meaning or getting at is because we have hope. And this may be the last day that you have the opportunity to live. But that is not of a concern to us as Christians because Jesus deepens our hope. And so let Jesus be I am today. Let him do those four things. Direct your path, develop your life, devote himself to you, and deepen your hope. That will change everything. I I sometimes find myself saying the same thing uh, whenever I'm in a conversation with someone who says, well, they passed away and they were a Christian. That makes all the difference because that changes everything. And you've had those conversations before where you're talking to someone who's passed away or talking about someone who's passed away and you say, was he a Christian? Was he a believer? And as soon as the person says, yes, he was or yes, she was, there's like this exhale, exhaust of relief. Good. Because it's unpleasant when the answer is, nah, she wasn't. He wasn't. That changes everything. Let Jesus change you this evening. Direct, develop, devote, and deepen are the four things that Jesus says in his I am statements. There are a lot of different ways of studying the I am statements. This is not the only way, and this isn't necessarily the the most uh, beneficial way, but I hope that it has been somewhat beneficial in what we're trying to do tonight, and that is to devote ourselves back to Jesus in the way that he's devoted himself to us. If you're not a Christian and there are those who are present who have never been baptized, we would love the opportunity to either A, study with you to answer your questions to get you closer to that point, to that place, or, or B, you're at that point and you say, it's time for me to make the decision to be a child of God and dedicate and devote myself to the Lord. 
we would welcome that opportunity and you would be a source of encouragement to us for the entire week, let alone the rest of the year. We would think about you as we do about others who have made that choice over the last few months. And so we hope that you'll make that decision. If you are a child of God living in error and you need to make some sort of correction in your life, some sort of uh, path correction uh, and rededicate yourself to the Lord, we'd welcome the opportunity to help you while we stand and while we sing.